Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm super excited to tell you that I'm speaking with Kristen Svercheck. Now, what an episode. You're going to love this. Uh, Kristen takes us through her journey from right at the beginning when she was just advising John and Logan, the founders at Lyft, as an external lawyer, um, and she joined the Lyft team uh, back in, I think it's 2012, when they just done their Series B and the journey that she's been from that time right through to what she referred to sometimes, you know, the, the Super Bowl of GCs, the, uh, the IPO, and now as the um, President of Business Affairs at Lyft. What a great journey and what a story. And in the meantime, and between all of that, um, having three kids, she takes us through the challenges, the um, what's been, what's important, the impact that she has had, and it's been a marvelous impact too. It's one of my favourite episodes, I have to say, and I don't like to call out favourites, but I know you're going to love it. So, in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Hi, Kristen. It's fantastic to see you, and fantastic to have you on the show. Welcome aboard. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Now, Kristen, I'm just going to launch right in, of course. Up until November last year, you were the general counsel at Lyft and you're currently the president of business affairs. But take us back to the early days as how Kristen Svercheck got interested in law in the first place. What sparked the interest and then we'll launch into launch into your career? Well, it's sort of funny. I didn't have any family members who were lawyers, so I didn't actually know a ton about the legal profession. But growing up, I was always, I was a born advocate. And so my parents would joke that I would make a really good lawyer. And so, you know, as I was in college, kind of thinking about what comes next, applying to law school felt like a good idea, even though I really didn't. Now, looking back in hindsight, I really had no idea what I was signing up for. Yep. Not many of us back then actually did. Likewise, I didn't have any any family in, in law, but you were clearly arguing with your parents and putting your case forward lots of times when you were young and they spotted you out early, did they? That's exactly right. And now with my eldest, who's also a girl, I think she's a born lawyer too. So we'll see. (laughs) You can see that too. Okay, so take me through the the early career in law. I know you spent some time at Gunderson Detmer as an associate and then you were a partner at Silicon Legal Strategy. Tell us a little bit about that before you joined Lyft. Oh, I think you joined um, Zimbride actually and then and then lift. Yeah, I mean, similar to sort of falling into law school, when I was in law school, I didn't really know what I was going to do kind of as a career post law school. When I was interviewing for a summer associate position, I happened upon Gunderson Detmer. They're, you know, a well-known Silicon Valley corporate firm that works with startup clients and investors. And the firm's grown quite a bit since then. But at the time, like they were kind of known as this boutique. And I didn't really know anything about corporate law, but I went, I met people. I thought like, okay, I really like the energy and atmosphere here. I like that I'm working with smaller companies. You know, I barely even knew enough to like know the difference between corporate and litigation. 
But I thought like, hey, sure, I like the people, I'll give this a try. And so found that I thankfully really liked the work. And later when I went to Silicon Legal was doing the exact same kind of work, just in an even smaller firm scale. At the time, it was just like me and the founder of the firm. And that firm has has since grown as well. And so when I was at Silicon Legal, was working with a lot of really small company clients. And one of those was Zimride. I had actually represented the investors in their series seed round of funding. Uh, they raised about a million dollars in June of 2010. And after the fundraise, they brought me on as outside company counsel. They'd been working with a big firm and the small firm Silicon Legal was just a better fit for their needs at the time. And they were just like those clients that I got along really well with. I was inspired by their these are the co-founders, John and Logan. I was inspired by their like passion and commitment for the work. And so that was sort of how I came to know them, which ultimately led to me later leaving to join their company. And tell me, that transitioned at that time. So you clearly, you're acting as a lawyer, you're advising lots of different companies. You've made the decision to move in-house. You obviously got on with John and Logan quite well. You had some experience with them. What was your thinking behind? Because that kind of changed you from being a private practice lawyer to in-house. What was going through you and into a kind of effectively startup at that time? What was the thought process there? What were you thinking about, well, here's where I want my career to go, if you were thinking that far ahead? Yeah, um, I very much actually was not thinking that. So I'd worked as with Zimride as my client for about two years when they launched the Lyft product. And, and when that happened, and it was sort of just like this little offshoot of Zimride, you know, John and Logan started calling me all the time with just like all of these questions, like any question you could imagine under the sun, because everything that they were doing was new. And so there was no like template or precedent or anything for the business. And so, you know, I would just sort of help them puzzle through it as best I could. And they had, I had been at board meetings where the board members were sort of like, you guys really need to hire in-house, in-house legal. And, and they'd sort of joke like, oh, Kristen, you'll come join them. Right. And, you know, everyone would laugh. But like, I really was not seriously thinking about leaving my firm. I liked it. Like I said, I was, you know, in very early after the founder of the firm and we had a solid relationship and we were building out the practice. And there was a lot I liked about it from like both a substantive work perspective, from a personnel perspective. Like I thought I already had the job that I wanted actually. And so when John and Logan asked me to join them as Lyft's first legal hire, or Lyft, it was sort of a combo of Lyft and Zimride, I actually turned them down initially. So it, it definitely wasn't with any sort of like strong point of view of like, I want to go in house, this is my career path. It was more like, no, I already, I'm the person that already likes my work. And so, but they were very persistent. And so ultimately, I sort of made the calculation that I should join them. And what that looked like at the time was... Lyft, at, we had just done our Series B fundraise. It was a little under $20 million, I think. And so I knew that the company had probably like a year of capital. It was only in San Francisco at the time, like 30-some employees, but was already getting like incredible media attention, like, you know, huge customer following. Like the customer following in those days was so great that, that we actually had to have a wait list to let people use the app because we couldn't even keep up with the demand. And so I sort of just said to myself, like, well, even if this thing fails and it's not around for more than a year, like, I will have learned a ton. I can go back to Silicon Legal. I can go back to another firm. 
or maybe I'll be more marketable to a company if I decide like that's what I want to do. So it was really more like about the worst case scenario didn't really seem that bad. And I thought I'd maybe gain something out of it. Well, well, and as as it turned out was, you know, it was completely the opposite of a worst case scenario. So I'd love to talk about, let's say you time up until you changed position November last year. So as you time in general counsel, tell me about what some of the early challenges were. Because I'm I'm thinking, what a ride, what a ride it's been, it, it must have been for you from those early days through. But tell me some of those early challenges and how that kind of changed to, to your more, let's say, more recent challenges as the general counsel? So, I mean, the first challenge right off the bat, like literally day one at, at Lyft was the transportation regulatory situation. So during the time that I'd been talking to John and Logan about my offer, they'd started receiving nasty grams from the California Public Utilities Commission. Uber was getting the same. You know, at the time, Uber was like a very different company, a black car focused company. And Lyft was this kind of peer to peer ride sharing, but we were, you know, getting the same regulatory attention. So the first question was like, is this company even going to be able to like operate in its home state for any amount of time? And, you know, keep in mind, like I've already said, I was a corporate attorney. So like I have no experience in this landscape whatsoever. And so I think like day one on the job, John and Logan were like, hey, we're going to meet with one of the commissioners at the CPUC. Do you want to come with us? And I was like, okay, buckle up, let you know, let's go. So it was really interesting, but also energizing in that like, in that moment in time, that was sort of like all that mattered. And so, you know, very obviously, obviously, the history is now well known, but like about a year later, the CPUC published a set of rules for transportation network companies, of which we were one. And, you know, that ultimately was effectively like copied in all 50 states with little, you know, tweaks here and there. But but really, like that set the foundation for the business being able to grow as it has. So that was like the battle of, you know, the first year-ish. I would say like pretty hot on its heels were litigation battles. Again, like also not my background, corporate lawyer. And so, you know, next thing I knew, we started getting like auto, personal auto injury suits, driver misclassification suits, sort of like run-of-the-mill consumer class actions, like FCRA and other things like that. And so all of a sudden I had to navigate a bunch of litigation. And so that was like another major kind of bucket of challenges. And at that time, it was sort of like building out the legal team, you know, so the first like year plus it was just me. And so then it was sort of starting to hire to like staff up for all these needs. And then, you know, a lot of years there in between of just like growing pains, like when as we expanded across the country like I said, we did ultimately get regulations in, in basically every every state, but sometimes that was with like a lot of battle and heartache and taxi cab lawsuits. And so it was on and on and on. And I can imagine overlaid with all of that, you, you've actually got the commercial battles, just the, the hand-to-hand combat which <laughs> with Uber and the like. So I just think about the intensity because those battles are all survival battles too. The regulatory, can we actually operate? Are we going to be able to survive the lawsuits? Are we going to be able to beat or survive against the competition? That is kind of hand-to-hand combat of survival. And it feels like it would have been relentless kind of year after year. Have I got it right? It was pretty relentless. So like in some ways though, I think that's what kept me at Lyft. And, you know, I'm still here today for so long is because like, Every year felt like a new chapter in a way. It's like 
the company got bigger, the competitive dynamic changed, the like regulatory and legal landscape changed. Like my job was never and never actually ultimately even got to be, but was like never at status quo. Yeah, no, I can certainly. And, and so, right at, let's say, at the later stages of um, your position as general counsel, what, what would you identify as the top two or three kind of the top of mind challenges or things that kept you up at night? Well, I mean, in so almost three years ago now, in March of 2019, we went public. And so, you know, obviously for any general counsel, that's I think actually one of my team members referred to it as like the Super Bowl for general counsels or something like that. So that was, you know, just major legal preparation leading up to the IPO. And then immediately afterward, as we like shifted to the dynamics of a public company and the SEC reporting requirements and and whatnot, that I think we were we were ready for at that point in time, but it is like a pretty big mindset shift. And you know, like I've already said, like we were a company with a lot of legal and regulatory challenges. And so, you know, the diligence process with the underwriters council was like exhaustive. And and so there was just like a lot to be done. But that felt like a really incredible kind of like moment in time for the legal team to have gotten to like show its stuff. But then of course a year after March 2019 was March 2020 when COVID struck and all of a sudden like nobody was leaving their houses. And so that meant like nobody was calling a lift on their phone. So then all of a sudden the challenge was actually more of a, again, I guess back to the like business survival sort of challenge was like thinking through that. And so, you know, we did a major layoff in April of 2020 and that was really difficult, but necessary for the stage that the business was at at that moment in time. But it was just like one of these things that we never would have expected to be in that position a year post-IPO. It's funny, when I think about those challenges you've gone through, you know, survival, competition, COVID, the layoffs, I mean, March, March, April 2020 was, uh, they were awful months for, for so many businesses. And, and a number of still suffering too, but the the the, the shock there. But okay, fast forward November last year, you've changed position, you've become so uh, president of business affairs. And when I have a look at what you're responsible for now, Kristen, so it's legal, people, public policy, supply chain management, business development, chief information officer functions. You thought there was not enough as the general counsel. So you, 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 you've taken on, how do you get your arms around all of those kind of functions? And I mean, my head hurts when I read those out. How, how do you do that? How do you actually take responsibility, get your arms around and actually deliver? And I know it's early days for you so far. You're a few months in there, but t- tell me about that. Sure. And yeah, it is early days. So I certainly won't come at this from a position of like, I figured it all out and I, you know, the job is done. But let's see. Well, so I guess one thing that I left out of my sort of narrative there was in the middle of all of this, I had three kids while um, employed at Lyft. Of course you did. Because you weren't busy enough, of course. Yeah. Exactly. So so I took you know maternity leave in early 2015 and early 2017, and then in early 2021, just about a year ago. And so like throughout that sort of parallel with that moment in time, I was really building out the legal team and honing my skills as a people leader, not just as a lawyer. So a people leader, a manager... Etc. And I think maternity leave was a really important forcing function for me to be able to actually just like let go. Like, could I trust my team enough to delegate to them? Because it was important to me and my family that I take a real leave. I wasn't planning to like have a baby and pop back into work, you know, two weeks later. And so, and I mean, 
huge kudos to my team at Lyft, but also our leadership for like really being supportive of, you know, men and women taking legitimate parental leaves. And so I'll just give credit where credit's due. But so in 2021, I was out for the first like four and a half months of the year. And during that time, my very long-term head of litigation who had worked for me, I mean, she's now worked for me for a little over seven years. So I guess it was a little over six years at the time stepped into the general counsel role. And, you know, I was sort of thinking about like, okay, what's next for me? And she was thinking about, well, what's next for her? Like she's now gotten a taste of being general counsel. And so right when I came back from leave, I started talking to our co-founders about like, what could a new and expanded role for me look like? Like the legal team can run itself without me there. Like I'm I'm not necessary for that anymore. I, I love the practice of law and I love my team, but like They just don't need me. And so sort of working together, we conceived of this idea, this president of business affairs, which was like sort of a made up title, but it was meant to denote like running all of the teams internal to the business. So our co-founders decided they would sort of divide up like our CEO, Logan Green, took kind of the tech side of the house and what we call our lines of business, which are ride sharing, micro mobility and fleet. And then John Zimmer their president took like the more sort of external facing marketing comms, as well as some emerging businesses we have. And so that left me with the like everything else, the kind of running, running the back of the house. And so that was like how all those orgs were picked as to like how I'm doing it. The position that I was in, which was like a really lucky one was all those orgs already had super strong installed leaders. And and like with, you know, Lindsay stepping into the general counsel role, she'd already done that when I was on leave. So she was the actually the only new leader, even though she'd already had a moment to take that on. And so right now my role is much less about like the direct hands-on work and more about like thinking about how we can move the business forward, how we can gain efficiencies between these organizations, getting John and Logan out of the way where, where I need to get them out of the way. And just thinking about like bringing together teams that have a lot of connections with one another, but might not otherwise have a reason to like do best practices sharing and things like that. And anything, Kristen, that you've learned about yourself in the last few months, kind of stepping above some of the doing, I suppose, and really taking responsibility for those functions and having strong leaders there, any early learnings for you? Yeah, look, I think there's like good and bad to it. You know, on, on the one hand, over the years working in legal, I had realized that like, I really in like, I really enjoyed making a lot of the non-legal decisions as well. And I think probably, I don't know if you found it a little bit liberating to let kind of go on the day-to-day stuff and be able to try and elevate a little bit and think and basically develop the new skill, the new muscle, if you like, about thinking strategically, I think. And having, a like anything, having a great team of leaders underneath you who you can trust and have got confidence in and give you that space to be able to think, start thinking two, three, four steps ahead. Now, Kristen, I know there are a couple of topics which are dear to your heart, so I'm going to touch on those. We've talked about one of them, of course, the time that you've had available to have your three kids in the last few years and how important that's been and how Lyft has supported you during that. But talk about championing working mothers, essentially, and what you've done there at Lyft, because as I said, I, I know it's something which is dear to your heart and, and as it should be. And 
obviously something benefit uh, which has benefited yourself yeah that really goes back to me actually first talking to john and logan about a role at the company when i first was considering whether i would take this in-house position i didn't yet have kids but i knew that that was sort of on the horizon i you know in an ideal world and so at that moment i i actually was pretty pointed about asking them like hey this is a big role but like i'm going i know that parenthood is something i aspire to and when i'm a parent i want to be a real parent i want to be able to you know get offline at a reasonable hour i want to be able to take a real parental leave and you know i knew when i was asking these questions that they would say all the right things but what i was really testing for was like how did they say those things was their sincerity. And they couldn't have been more supportive and sincere in terms of responding to me in that moment. And so then sort of fast forward a couple years when I was pregnant with my first and Lyft hadn't yet had any moms take a maternity leave. And so I had to go to our then head of HR and say, so like, what's our leave policy? And he and I worked together to craft it. And actually, I'm proud to say Lyft improved upon it over the years. So it's even better and more generous now than it than it originally was. But that was like that first time when I sort of planted the flag in the ground, like, well, I'm going out on leave and it's got to be a real leave. And I, one of our board members, Ann Mirico, I recall saying to me, like, you have to take a real maternity leave because if you don't, it's not it won't be OK for anyone else to. You got to give everybody else permission and I took that to heart. And, you know, now sitting here, I've, I've taken advantage of that leave policy three times over and, and done it in a real time, real way each time. And no doubt, you know, kind of set the culture as you have to do from the top, from the leadership team for the rest of the organization. So that the filters through and, and people have taken your lead and, and not felt the guilt or not felt like it was something that they shouldn't be doing. Fantastic. I know Lyft has also partnered, partnered with CareSource, an initiative supported by the White House. And that's all about how access to rights to healthcare appointments and other maternity-related services can improve just general maternal health outcomes. Talk about that a little bit and how that came up, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, just going to zooming out a little bit more broadly, Lyft has, you know, we, we sort of say like the transportation network is our superpower. And so we have made a heavy investment in supporting non-emergency medical transport rides. So, you know, not just, you know, maternal health, but but really like getting any individual to his or her doctor's appointment. And so we have a number of partnerships in that space. And this has been you know, a really important application of the network that's different than the usual use case people think about the the random consumer who, you know, wants to get to home or work or out to dinner or whatever. This is like, no, I'm a senior citizen and maybe I don't even have a smartphone, but I can call a dispatcher and they can help connect me with a ride so I can go get to my doctor's appointment. Because we know that healthcare outcomes you know, are really heavily correlated to whether or not you're able to keep your appointments, do your preventative medicine, et cetera. And it's such a, when I thought about that and read about that, it's such a basic, it should be like a basic fundamental right. You should be able to not only have general access to to healthcare, but be able to get there. And I don't know that we actually think about those or well, certainly those of us that don't struggle there don't actually think about there are people out there that can't actually get to an appointment. Exactly. 
and you know, put, you know, I have in mind, well, the less well-off, the, the elderly, those that don't actually have smartphones. So just a basic ability to get to a healthcare appointment and be able to, 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 to facilitate that. And we think about, we think, you know, we spend so much time thinking about making sure that people are insured, but if you are in, have insurance, but you're never going to a doctor's appointment, then it's sort of moot. And so being able to facilitate that transportation is, is, you know, again, really one of our superpowers. And Kristen, more recently, when Texas introduced their controversial Senate Bill 8 law, uh, lift moved pretty quickly. I know at least with a, a $1 million donation to parenthood, to Planned Parenthood, as well as, I think, covering the legal, announcing that you'd cover the legal fees of any drivers who were sued under that law. Again, how, how did that come up? And, and talk a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. And just going back a little bit, you know, Texas Senate Bill 8 is a law that basically provides for individuals to have civil liability in the cases of sort of aiding or abetting an abortion. And it's the language is incredibly broad. And so just procedurally what happened in the United States is, you know, this law was passed. It was taken up to the U.S. Supreme Court on the so-called shadow docket to see if the Supreme Court would stay the law. The Supreme Court did not. This was like the first week in September 2021. And huge, huge credit to our CEO who said, A, this law sounds horrible, just period. And B, what does this mean for our drivers? If our if if one of the Lyft drivers drives somebody to their abortion or even to see a you know a counselor who maybe recommends to this person that that abortion is a possible outcome, does that mean that the driver has possible civil liability? And that is how broad this law is. And so, you know, we kind of immediately we really focused on the way in which that could possibly affect one of our major stakeholders, which is the driver population. And obviously, Texas is an enormous state. And so we thought, like, well, how can we respond here? And by the way, this is constitutionally protected, at least still as of right now. And like, why isn't the Supreme Court acting? And so we thought about, like, what can we do that's in keeping with our values? And so that's why the driver defense fund was actually like, in my opinion, the most critical component of it, because we needed our drivers to know that we would stand behind them if if something like this did come to pass. And then we did the $1 million Planned Parenthood donation as really just sort of a to take a corporate stand about how we felt about this law. And, you know, I'm, I'm sad to say sitting here, you know, six months later that we really didn't see a lot of companies follow us. And it's been a topic that most companies are pretty loath to address. You know, they might say things like internally to their employee base, but they don't say things externally. And, you know, in an era when we've seen companies taking more and more public stands on possibly controversial social issues, this is just one that most people still won't touch. So like, it was one of the proudest moments of my career at Lyft, for sure. And it was a question I was going to lead into how you do feel, and I think it's clear how you do feel about basically corporate responsibility to, to speak out on what can, what can be difficult and controversial social issues. And clearly, I think what you're saying from your perspective is, is that there's a, the, the, there's a duty and obligation to, to do so in circumstances where 
certainly what's happening is inconsistent with the, the corporate ethos or, or, or the philosophy, in this case, that lifters adopted. Exactly. And, you know, again, really with that tie to the driver population, you know, we also wanted to make sure that it was something that was genuine. You know, we didn't at all want to be accused of like taking advantage of the moment. So we, we wanted to make sure that, you know, if when we speak out on topics, that it's something that really has that obvious tie back. And, and we very much felt that here. Now, Kristen, that kind of sets the scene for me sharing a little story about how you and I first connected and why I reached out. And that was, as all founders do, I was listening to Harry Stubbings on VC20, and he was interviewing someone that you've just mentioned, Anne Murico, um, and who works at Floodgate, an early investor in Lyft. And Harry asked Anne, who is an unsung hero that you'd like to call out from the Lyft team? That's made a real impact and moved the needle. And Anne named you, Kristen, which is a huge shout out. And she described you as a force of nature. So I'm going to say two, two things about that. One, given the topics that we've just talked about, I can absolutely see why she has given you that description. I won't ask you to comment on that, but, but there's a second thing that, she, um, that I will ask you to comment. She talked about a specific example in the boardroom where the question was asked, why is it important to do the right thing? And Kristen, you basically stood up, put your hand up or or said out loud because it's good business practice to do so. Can you give us some context around that and tell us a bit more about that? Sure. And you know what's funny? So I, I listened to that podcast and I was obviously, I will say just incredibly touched that Anne mentioned me because I think like the world of her as is probably evident from me just having referenced her her advice to me many years ago. And she's given me lots of other great nuggets of wisdom too that it would take, that's a whole nother hour to recount. But what is funny about that is I don't even remember saying that. And so I don't even remember the context around it. And so it, that's a sort of, that's this funny sort of moment of like, oh, well, I made this impression on her in this moment where like, it, it obviously wasn't, it didn't make an impression on me, but I can explain, I could certainly explain what I think about that philosophy in general. And, you know, the early days of Lyft, we had this you know, crazy sort of rivalry with Uber. And obviously, like many words have been written about that. And, you know, there were all sorts of things being done at Uber that we were not doing at Lyft. And of course, there were questions internally, like, well, are we at a competitive disadvantage? Should we be doing those things too? And I just always felt strongly with with really no like data or proof to back it up that this would catch up to them. And that ultimately it would not be good from a business perspective. And so that, you know, maybe you would see some business lift in the short term, but that, you know, the arc of time is long and and so that it wouldn't be right from a long-term perspective. I mean, if I could amend that statement, I should have also said like, you also just should do the right thing. So it's not just because it's good business practice, but like, it's, I mean, it's just, it's what you should do as a human. And It was so interesting, you know, once we started seeing like all of the leadership change at Uber, you know, going back now, like four years ago, that I was really, it was proven out, but you never, I think in business, like you, it's so rare to get that actual, like 
real life in the moment data. So it was, you know, it's funny to look back on. And it's, for me, it's a marvelous touchstone for life and for business, doing the right thing. And if there's, if you're not sure what that right thing is, then the peers, the benchmarks around you, the people that you're speaking to, the, 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 the people you're holding yourself both accountable to as well as that you're looking up to. But that's a benchmark for life me, and to me and for business, doing the right thing. And, and then working out what that actually is, that might take some work, but I think it's hard to go wrong if that's the touchstone. That's right. And it's, it's not always simple, but it's always worth doing that level of inquiry. Kristen, I'm going to round out with some of my favorite questions. What's the hardest thing you've ever done, personal or professional, that you're prepared to share with us? Oh, my gosh. I don't even know. Or what, uh, yeah, what, what about three kids during the ride of your life? <laughs> that doesn't feel that hard to me. Is that funny? <laughs> Now, now, you, you, now, I can I can tell you now. The audience is thinking this woman is incredible. Okay, the three kids during the. <laughs> you know, I will actually. This is the hardest thing for me right now. I guess is what I will share is making time for myself because I do spend so much time focused on my kids, my husband, our family, and my job. And so that's so I will say as far as what what do I think is hard actually being a little bit more selfish is a goal that I have for this year. Any advice that you'd give to your 25-year-old self? Yeah, I absolutely. My advice would be not to take myself so seriously. And because I think especially as a younger female professional, you feel like you sort of have to put on this really corporate and serious veneer to be taken seriously. And and there's unfortunately probably like a little bit of truth to that, but I have noticed that over the years the people that I gravitate to the most and the people, you know, from whom I've gotten the most like professional value are the ones who are just a little bit more natural. And sometimes they say the wrong thing. You know, they're not always like perfect and polished. And so I think that that's what I would say to myself. Yeah, and to, to me, that's all about being comfortable with your genuine self because when you are, you actually gravitate to others that are also genuine and not struggle with that veneer that, that you're talking about. One final question, anything that's keeping you up at night now? People always ask me this question and I always say my kids. <laughs> Look, that, that'll, that'll only last another 15 or so years, but so you, you'll be good after that. <laughs> it's funny because people always tell you like you are woken up during the infant years, but I didn't, I don't think I realized that like, oh, my seven-year-old would still be coming in in the middle of the night and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that's what they don't tell you. <laughs> that's what people don't tell you. No, I mean, in terms of what keeps me up at night, look like I'm ready to be done with COVID, you know, and that's not just from a business or personal perspective. It's just like, it's like been this sort of like gloom over life for two years. And, you know, we've managed to like find plenty of joy and plenty of success and all of that in between, but it still is just, it's interruptive to like the normal flow and rhythm of day-to-day life. And, you know, I'll be happy for the day when I don't have to like take my kids to every activity masked, for example. Ready to move on. 
Kristen, it's been an absolute joy and pleasure to speak to you. I know the audience is going to get a huge amount of this episode, so I really want to say thank you very much. I've had an absolute blast. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.